he started offering them the same, the same advice. You know, if you reduce sugar and if you reduce processed carbohydrates, you might improve your health outcomes. And then he also really started to look at biochemistry and understanding how important animal fats and proteins were in healing as well. The reason I went into my research was because Gary got reported to the medical board for advocating people reduce sugar. He got reported to the medical board by a dietitian at his hospital. And they were going to investigate him for recommending something as simple as reducing sugar and processed food out of someone's diet and improving health. And I just went, this makes no sense. I actually wrote a blog at the time as a photographer saying, don't shoot the messenger, because I thought, this is just, this is just science. And I started watching the guys. Before I met you in 2017, I was watching Low Carb Down Under in Australia, talking, all these people going up and talking about the science. And I just thought, wait a minute, this message isn't getting across. Gary's getting hammered. Tim Noakes is getting hammered over in South Africa at the same time. I started to think it's not about the science at all. If people understand that information is being held back from them, and like this was just Barbara Streisand's house, in our case, the information that's being held back from them is an opportunity to regain their health. So when people understand that information is being withheld, they are far more invested in searching out the message and then sharing it, which is, as you say, that's what social media has done. It's the Streisand effect. Because a doctor is being told he can't tell people how to improve their health. He has to band-aid sick care. He has to medicate. He has to operate. Band-aiding sick care instead of empowering people, which what well, David Unwin's one of the biggest ones is, I found joy in medicine. <laughs> Gary, Tim, like this is this is where it becomes exciting to practice medicine when you can give people tools to take back control of their health when you can show people how they can improve their blood glucose and you can de-prescribe, you can take people off medication. That's, that's why you go into medicine. That's why you want to become a doctor. You don't want to go in to make people sicker. Welcome to The Herd and thanks for listening. If you enjoy this sodcast, please like it, share it, give it a good rating and follow and help more people find their way into the Ruminati herd. If you have suggestions for improvements, please let me know. Howdy, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Meet Your Herdmates Sodcast. I am very pleased to be joined today by Belinda Fetke. Thank you for coming. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, Belinda Fetke, for those who don't know of her, is a, you're, you were trained as a nurse. You're a registered nurse. You've been a professional photographer. Uh, you co-founded um, Nutrition for Life, and is it Launceston? Launceston. 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 Thank you. Yes. Launceston in Tasmania. Uh, people so may far remember. away on the other side of the world. <laughs> it's five hours earlier tomorrow there from where I am. Um, and you may have remembered a guest that I had on uh, another episode or so ago, also from Tasmania, and coincidentally enough. Uh, <laughs> um, 
And that's probably part of the story of how you've become so engaged in researching specific areas, but you've been a, a supporter of low-carb, healthy fat for a while now, right? I have been for a while, yes. And, and I guess it's part of my story, how somebody who was a professional photographer did a full circle and came back to health advocacy. So it's interesting. And you say come back to health, but you had that perspective as a nurse, but that was what you were trained and how much nutrition did you get in your training? For oh, I think we learned that lovely food pyramid, isn't it? Vanessa Spina says it's the biggest food pyramid or the biggest pyramid scan of all time. Um, so, yes, I trained as a nurse, had babies. We have three young adults now, but stopped to have children. And then I became a professional photographer for about 18 years. So... So far away from health, it wasn't funny, but it was quite nice. Gary, my husband, who you've already interviewed, is an orthopedic surgeon, so he was doing enough health <laughs> in the family. And it wasn't until he became sick, Peter, that my life started to change a little bit more, have more of a focus on the health aspects. Um, Gary was diagnosed with a, a very aggressive pituitary cancer in the year 2000, and our life as we knew it for a little while just was upside down, inside out. You may have seen on Twitter that Gary and I have been together for 40 years this weekend. I didn't, I never made an adult decision without him. So when he was diagnosed with cancer, I just, it, it floored me. And, and I had so much respect for him because he was determined not to die. He didn't want to miss out on what life had to offer and be around for our kids and be around for me. So he fought this thing so bravely. He had more surgery in 2004 and he was on chemotherapy for 11 and a half years. In 2009, he was told there was nothing more that they could do, that it would be a progressive disease that would kill him. And he started doing a lot of research. He'd, he'd already been researching just to see what current therapy, medical or surgical therapies were available, but he hadn't considered food as medicine. <laughs> that was off the radar. It was never discussed. It was never considered, and he certainly didn't consider it. He was eating by the food pyramid, a really good 6 to 11 serves per day of processed carbohydrates, bread, cereals, rice, pasta, and he actually said to me, because interestingly, I've never liked breakfast. So from a teenager, I've been an intermittent faster by choice, not because of health. Just I just didn't like it. And Gary just said to me, breakfast is the most important meal of the day. You've got to eat breakfast. And I go, no, I don't want to. So anyway, fast forward. He was given a book by a, a lawyer here in Australia called Sweet Poison. And this guy was... A, had been a lawyer for the tobacco industry and he'd gotten sicker and sicker and sicker and then he started to think about what the tobacco industry tactics were and he could see them mirrored in the sugar industry. So he wrote a book, Sweet Poison. Gary thought, well, what does a lawyer know about food, sugar? What does a lawyer know that I wouldn't know? I've studied biochemistry, anatomy, physiology. What does he know? And at the same time, uh, our 
pharmacist who's very much into a lot of alternative thoughts around um, health said to him, we're seeing some really interesting side effects of a drug called metformin. This is back in 2010, 2011. And what's happening as a side effect is that people with cancer are going into remission and there's less incidence of cancer in the group that are taking metformin compared to the non-group, the non-conforming group. So she said, maybe you should take metformin. Well, understand that over the last 11 years, Gary was now taking 10 medications. He was on chemotherapy, as I mentioned. Some of the medications were simply band-aiding side effects of previous medications. And he was becoming very unwell. So not only was he dealing with his cancer that gave him terrible headaches and, you know, it's, it's a horrible feeling to live with cancer, plus the chemo making him sick. Um, he was also on uh, high blood pressure medication. He was pre-diabetic. And he just thought, why would I take another medication? So he looked up to see what metformin was doing. And my layman understanding of it is that it takes the sugar out of the blood vessels and pushes it into the tissues, which probably isn't a great thing either. But it takes it out of the blood glucose, uh, bloodstream. And he thought why would I take another medication when maybe I just stop eating sugar? So that was the start of it in 2012. Mm. And he moved from that. So as he saw himself, as he saw his own health improvements, just simply reducing sugar and processed carbohydrates from his diet, he started to think how he could take that into his patients, take that message to his patients who were suffering from metabolic diseases um, weight-related joint issues, inflammation, and the, and type 2 diabetes was hitting our shores, and I would imagine America as well, like a tsunami. And Gary, 20 years ago, may see somebody with a complication of diabetes requiring um, debriding of the flesh, of, his, of toes or forefoot, maybe even a lower leg or a below-knee amputation. In 2013, 2014, he was starting to see somebody every single week in his medical clinic in Tasmania. And we're, we've got a catchment area of 120,000 people. It's very small. As you mentioned, we're on the other side of the world, down the bottom, tiny, tiny rural country town. And he was seeing that many people with complications of diabetes. And he started offering them the same, the same advice. So if you reduce sugar... And if you reduce processed carbohydrates, you might improve your health outcomes. And then he also really started to look at biochemistry and understanding how important animal fats and proteins were in healing as well. So that's where our story came from. So I was supporting him, watching things disappear out of our pantry. Mm -hmm. <laughs> can't eat that anymore, can't eat that anymore, can't eat that anymore. But you know, I was watching him take that control of his health. And it's interesting, as you said, as I started to uncover things, the reason I went into my research was because Gary got reported to the medical board for advocating people reduce sugar. He got reported to the medical board by a dietitian at his hospital. And the day that he received the letter from the board, he was, we were in Melbourne because he was just saying hello to our children for a weekend before he came back home to have his hip replaced. 
another complication of his, he would say his poor diet and too much exercise on a poor inflammatory diet when he was young. And he got this letter and I'm watching this man in hospital recovering from hip replacement, having fought cancer, put his cancer into remission and come off chemotherapy under supervision, but he'd been off chemotherapy, come off 10 medications and they were going to investigate him from recommending something as simple as reducing sugar and processed food out of someone's diet and improving health. And I just went, this makes no sense. I actually wrote a blog at the time as a photographer saying, don't shoot the messenger, because I thought, this is just, this is just science. And I started watching the guys. Before I met you in 2017, I was watching Low Carb Down Under in Australia talking at all these people going up and talking about the science. And I just thought, wait a minute, this message isn't getting across. Gary's getting hammered. Tim Noakes is getting hammered over in mm -hmm. South Africa. At the same time, I started to think it's not about the science at all. Mm -hmm. That's been my impression for some time, that it wasn't science that got us here. And it won't be science alone that gets us out because if science didn't create the problem, science can't solve it. There are other interests at play here. And I, I, I think that too many people aren't aware of that. So I, I think this, there, there was, in addition to really bad timing of dropping this on him during mm -hmm. his recovery from surgery, which may or may not be coincidental. Um, the, 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 the professional threat that was hanging over him was essentially loss of his career, right? Absolutely. They were threatening to take away his medical license. And this investigation went for two and a half years. So I started looking at the non-science. I started considering that maybe the expert witness that was brought in by the APRA Medical Board, the Australian Health Practitioner Regulation Agency, so they cover um, medical doctors, they cover nurses, they cover uh, occupational therapy, uh, Chinese medicine, physiotherapy, they cover all of those health and allied health practitioners and, and usually it's looking at it usually it's things like malpractice or patient Absolutely. abuse right that's what yes. they're doing in this case somehow this got turned into whether a physician could talk about nutrition but please go ahead yeah two and a half years to determine if a doctor could talk about nutrition and i'll just jump in here quickly and say over my discoveries, I realised that the Dietitians Association of Australia were never even under the board, the APRA medical, under the APRA board of health regulation. So in 2010, when it was set up, they were deemed too low a risk to public health to, to um, form under it. It was going to cost them too much. So they were too low a risk. So he was APRA determining if a doctor could talk about something that was too low a risk to even put the dietitians under it. So there had to be more. So I went digging, digging, sorry, and I first looked at the person that was brought in as the expert witness in this case. And it was 
the biggest nutrition gun in Southeast Asia Pacific region in my mind. Like massive. Like he, this man had um, been a professor at most of the major universities in Sydney and Melbourne. He was now in Taiwan. He was head of the IUNS, so the International Union of Nutrition Sciences. He founded the Asia-Pacific Journal of Clinical Nutrition. He founded the Asia-Pacific Clinical Nutrition Association. Like, he was very, very big. And I thought, why would someone like this be brought in to a tiny, tiny discussion, as far as I was concerned? Why weren't they just using someone local to discuss and, and a doctor was to he, talk about Was he brought in or did he just show up? Well, that's it. Was he brought in or did he just show up? Gary actually asked the APRA Medical Board and they said they don't know. He just he just appeared, as you say. Shazam. Shazam. He must work for the sugar industry. Why else would someone of his standing be targeting a doctor and making such why are they making such a big song and dance? So to cut a long story short, I found out he was working for a cereal company in Australia. Sanitarium, which is probably the biggest cereal industry and certainly the biggest sales of regular wheat bix <laughs> like Aussie kids are wheat bix kids. That's the slogan. And not only that, but Sanitarium call themselves the health and well-being company. So they're not just calling themselves a cereal company. They don't just make soy milks and alternative meats. They also provide um, corporate wellness programs. They have extended themselves out beyond that. They, they created um, resources for general practitioners to be able to push a button on their desktop computer and print out a beautifully branded resource for everything from insulin resistance to pregnancy to whatever else you want, telling people how to eat. And I thought, this is a cereal industry. <laughs> Again, why would they target someone like Gary? Well, apparently cereal sales were down. So that took my focus away from the sugar industry. It's the cereal industry that are doing this. And over the years, I've spent nearly seven years researching all of this now, but you won't believe it. I actually, I uncovered documentation stating that Gary was targeted for active defence by the Dietitians Association of Australia in a corporate partnership with the Australian Breakfast Cereal Manufacturers Forum. In 2014, he was named as targeted for active defence. And of course, part of this Australian Breakfast Cereal Manufacturers Forum, Cereal for Brekkie was their hashtag, with Sanitarium, Kellogg's, Nestle, and a group called Freedom Foods. For $23,000, our Dietitians Association of Australia had sold out their members because part of the contractual agreement was that the DAA were to use their members to influence, protect, and actively defend not only cereal and grains, but sugar's messaging. I've just gone, what? Hmm. How many? How, yeah, so how many of the dietitians understand this? Well, I don't know. And, and I think this is really unfair because the Dietitians Association of Australia, which is now just called Dietitians Association, I think they wanted to change their name after I've been calling them out so much, they, um, 
They are not only the accrediting body, they are the regulatory body for dietitians. Mm -hmm. So if they say that low carb is a fad diet and they print in these documents that are uncovered that anyone talking outside the dietary guidelines and maybe talking about low carb will be questioned, this is so wrong. And then they come after Wokar Down Under. They come after Gary in particular because he was getting a social media presence and that's what I think it was. He was starting to become loud. People who are loud like me, well, I'm not really a threat because I haven't got a qualification. But when a doctor like Tim Noakes and a doctor like Gary start to challenge the health benefits of low-carb, oh, sorry, challenge the health benefits of high-carb, low-fat diets, that's a serious threat to industry, I believe. And, of course, it's getting louder and louder. But that's why I think Gary and Tim were picked on. They were trying to silence the messenger because they wanted the message silent. Okay. And so, it backfired massively. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, Gary, in fact, in our conversation said that what was his crime became his salvation in the sense that he got in trouble because of social media, but because of social media, the word got past the, the gatekeepers and the exactly. response was enough to make people wake up. So, so this was two and a half years that that lasted, but then what was that I just heard recently that there's been an official, is that right? Official? No, no just an apology. Just an apology. It, it took four and a half years for us to get an apology and for all of the uh, it, I don't know, vexatious allegations dropped. So in 2018, Gary was cleared of all trumped up charges. It actually, we went to the National Health Ombudsman because this determination by the APRA Medical Board was non-appellable. We couldn't even use a, a lawyer. We couldn't go to court to fight it. It's... They have such power that it was just unbelievable. So I took over Gary's Facebook page and that's how I jumped into the spotlight. I was researching behind the scenes, but when they silenced him, Gary said, we can't let them do this. So it's called the Barbara Streisand Effect or the Streisand Effect. And in 2003, they were doing a story on the coastal erosion in California and photographed Barbara Streisand's house. And she wanted to try and stop the publication of these images. And, and social media, obviously, had started. So instead of silencing them, I, I guess if people understand that information is being held back from them, and like this was just Barbara Streisand's house, in our case, the information that's being held back from them is an opportunity to regain their health. So when people understand that information is being withheld, they are far more invested in searching out the message and then sharing it, which is, as you say, that's what social media has done. It's the Streisand effect. Mm -hmm. Because a doctor is being told he can't tell people how to improve their health. He has to Band-Aid sick care. He has to medicate. He has to operate. Band-Aiding sick care instead of empowering people, which what David Unman's one of the biggest ones is, I found joy in medicine. <laughs> Gary, Tim, like... This is, this is where it becomes exciting to practice medicine, when you can give people tools to take back control of their health, when you can show people how they can improve their blood glucose and you can de-prescribe, you can take people off medication. 
that's that's why you go into medicine. That's why you want to become a doctor. You don't want to go in to make people sicker. And no, no. so as yeah, as Gary said, this opportunity for me to jump into social media, I had to do a disclaimer and say, look, I won't be talking about the science in the same way Gary was, but I'll share the science, share stories, share the articles from people. And we had over a hundred thousand people see that first post. Gary only had five thousand people following on social media. Hundred thousand people go, whoa, something's really wrong down there in Tasmania. And then we get to be on the stage with low carb down under and come over to America and meet you. And and what was so exciting, I think, because I'd heard the science and I understand the science and I'm not as interested in the science because I've heard it so much. Meeting you was just so inspiring and hearing your conversation because I'm just like you. I, I think we need to build bridges into other areas of health, of our food production, and help other people understand where this demonising of saturated fats and proteins is coming from. And so I got really excited meeting you and loved meeting you again, was it just last year? Yeah, yeah I think so. So thank you for having a platform where we can cross-pollinate because this is so important. Absolutely. I And my hope is when I see the people in both audiences, I recognize, I sometimes feel guilty because I'm judging, um, but I see people who are heavy or I see people and I learn enough about their story to understand at a deeper level what they're really facing in the way of chronic illnesses. And in, in one audience, I'm hearing a message of hope and in the other audience, which I think is producing the foods that would be foundational in that lifestyle. Uh, we're not talking about that. We're, you know, we're still talking about beef as a lean protein in some places. I mean, I understand it's been several years since the 29 lean cuts of beef or whatever, but the animal source food industry still calls itself a protein as opposed to all the other nutrients that come with it. I, yes. my, my guess is because fat was supposed to be bad, we don't want to talk about fat. We do try to talk about all the other essential nutrients that are best sourced from animal source foods. Mm -hmm. But we still have a little bit of that fat phobia, I think, in some of the messaging. Um, you know, cholesterol, oh my goodness, um, despite any kind of evidence that dietary cholesterol is a harm. Uh, or, or a risk. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I get involved in conversations with people who think it's about how the animal source food is produced. Mm -hmm. And I understand that. But I think that there's a substantial uh, portion of the opposition to the consumption of animal source food. It doesn't matter how they're produced. It's merely the fact that you're consuming animal source foods that they're against. Yes. And, and, and so we can't appease them with messages about how we're doing it because they'll just play whack-a-mole and find another argument because mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. not about what we're talking about. It's about something behind all that. And yes. you've been looking behind the curtains to, to find 
maybe even back to find the roots, but certainly to be finding what's the current, you know, sort of wizard behind the curtain that's that's uh, manipulating the the. You should pardon the analogy, the levers of Oz. I'm sorry, I couldn't resist. Um, and I just ended up there by mistake, but or by accident. I just couldn't help it. Um, so, so you've been, you were finding out. Okay, there's this effort by the dietitians in league with these mm. processed yeah, food and sugar industry. Uh, representatives or entities but behind that there's something else isn't there there is so um, I started as I said with this man who was the expert witness looked into his associations and it's with a company called sanitarium a cereal industry in Australia that was actually founded by the Seventh-day Adventist Church's founder she came to Australia and set up Sanitarium and her, she wrote at the time that the health food business is to take the place of flesh meat, milk and butter. And that was why she set it up. She set it up as modelled on Kellogg's, but this time the church was to own it and all the profits. So we've got a cereal industry set up by a church. And even though everyone sort of has a vague idea that sanitarium's owned by a church, people don't really think about it. And in Australia, I always say that we're a convict country. We were here before the churches. So in that way, religion isn't as dominant in our culture as it is in the U.S., from when I've come over to visit and, and, to, and in speaking to people. It's not as dominant. The Seventh-day Adventist Church is tiny in Australia and New Zealand, where Sanitarium is based in both of those places, minuscule in comparison to the footprint they have in the US. So you know, we're talking about something that people don't probably even really think about the Seventh-day Adventist Church very much, involvement. We've got one hospital. It's a fairly major hospital in Sydney, but only one. There's one university college based in New South Wales where they um, do, I would do, imagine doing teaching, nursing, arts, theology. Again, just one small one. So when you consider that the Seventh-day Adventist Church is the second biggest educator in the world, and they have, I think I read the other day, 71 hospitals in the US, 26 in Florida alone. This is a major impact on health in the US. So we don't really think about the fact. And I've said to you, they're producing fact sheets for our doctors. They're producing educational materials for dietitians. They're producing because they're the health food company. You know, we know what's right for health. They are pro-cereal grains, seeds, soy, they're pro that. That's what they produce. And I started to consider more, well, where, where did this messaging come from? So I, as you say, I've looked right back into the history of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and I realised that there's a lot of other vested interests involved in the dietary guidelines. So I'm not suggesting it's only them, but they have played a very, very influential role 
in demonising saturated animal fats and proteins from 1863, when Ellen G. White received her first vision from God, that fruits, grains, nuts and seeds are the God-appointed diet for man. And so I've had a fascinating history lesson, but understanding how powerful this influence is. And there's a guy called Joan Sabat. He's been on the US 2020 Dietary Guidelines Committee. And he wrote an article, I don't know if it was a rebuttal or an agreement, with Gary first speaking about my research in 2017. He wrote an article called The Global Influence of the Seventh-day Adventist Church on Diet. And not only did they agree with everything I've been saying, because nothing I've said isn't found on the internet, um, but he also suggested that the advent of nutrition science came about with the advent of the Adventist church. Hmm. So they were the first church to really be involved in nutrition, in, in promoting health. And Ellen believed that flesh meat was as toxic a stimulant as alcohol, tobacco, mm. spices, caffeine. So, if not more so. And so understanding that and then starting to put together this thing about sanitarium and their partnership with the Dietitians Association and understanding then, going back to our health star rating systems and sanitariums working on the algorithms, of course, it's going to give them four and a half, five stars for their products and demonise anything that's got saturated fat in it. And that just started all clicking and I've gone, wait a minute, this isn't about the science, this is the non-science. And just understanding how influential this group is, even though they're small, they're very, very powerful, because they, they want this message to get out there. They've been commissioned by God to tell the world about the gospel, and Ellen has put in, if you read her interpretations of the Bible, she's actually placed health, their health reform message in the first angel's message of Revelation 14. Mm. So part of their, I say their, their marketing of the church's mission is using health, using diet to get their message further because it's much more palatable. Well, I and I think that you would agree that this isn't about an individual's um, personal belief. Yes, it I is, am. however, to make sure that everyone understands that we've got significant global policies that are to a large degree based on this theological foundation, not a scientific one. Yes. Um, and and it's it's only fair that we should know that. And at several key points, there have been decisions made by the organizations that you've mentioned that didn't declare their conflict of interest in this case. And so then everyone looks and says, oh, look, the so-and-so dietitians say that a vegan or vegetarian diet can be as helpful as, mm-hmm. you know, um, a diet that contains animal source food. And from a biochemical perspective, as long as you're following an omnivorous diet, which I'm trying to use to replace the phrase vegetarian, because I think if you don't eat red meat, but you eat fish and poultry and eggs and seafood and dairy or any of those, 
you have an opportunity to have a diet that supplies adequate essential nutrition. If you get rid of all animal source food, it's very difficult for me to envision, especially at certain key phases of development that you could get enough. Um, but then it, uh, we, we also have people playing games with what the definition of vegetarian or vegan means. And uh, I think I remember this right, that it, it, the church, the Seventh-day Adventist church would consider you following a vegetarian diet if you only eat meat once a week or something like that. Is that does that sound From the Adventist health, Yeah, the Adventist health studies, when I've looked into those, some of the criteria are that you're a vegetarian if you don't eat less than once a week. But you're also a vegan if you eat red meat or eat animal proteins and fats less than once a month. Okay. You can still quantify as a vegan, which is okay for them because they're keeping that tiny bit of health going. But it's not the message they should be telling the greater population who then go, we need to be vegan and don't understand. So, yeah, mm. I, I, I apologise to your listeners because normally I preface my talk by saying I, I'm truly, I'm not anti-vegan, not anti-vegetarian, I'm definitely not anti-religion. We've spoken about it together and I grew up in a very Christian household and I, that was probably my biggest fear in talking about my research. I kept it undercover for two years until I had enough information because I hated the idea that I would hurt people by putting out this information because to me, it's the commercial arm of the church that I'm discussing, the commercial arm of the church based on the church ideology, which even if you read Ellen's work, she always talked about present truth. So in her defence, maybe in the 1860s, when there was no refrigeration and when there was a lot of other things happening, she somehow tied these elements together that meat was dangerous and diseased and whatever else. But it was always present truth. So things change within the church to quantify with what's happening currently. And I believe that if she was here now, she might not be as happy with or you know, actually see what was happening. One of the first missionaries who came to Australia got very, very sick and she wrote a letter to him and told him to eat eggs. She said, because he went strict vegan and she said, you need to put eggs back into your diet. So it's my concern is that the commercial arm of the church and some of the people within the church who are passionate about taking this message further because they honestly believe it's the right thing are taking away our choice to eat animal proteins and fats, which my husband, Gary, would never have gotten well. They would have lost him if he'd kept up with his high-carb, low-fat diet. It was making him so sick, and it's making a lot of people very sick. Mm -hmm. I'm wanting to talk about choice. Mm -hmm. And in my mind, a cereal industry owned by a church can't be making that choice for me. They can't be silencing the message of health. I agree. So you have, uh, you, you come up with some hashtags, or you just... <laughs> Or you just use the ones that come from Gary. I don't know. No, no. So talk, Mine. Talk. I've taught him social media. <laughs> oh. oh, good. Um, 
I think I've just gained a couple points here. Um, so <laughs> what does be noise, hashtag be noisy with me mean? I guess that takes, takes us back to when I first got onto social media and I realised that in me telling people that this is what's happening to Gary and he's being silenced, they were totally invested in the messenger being silenced and then they wanted to know what the message was. So be noisy with me is just amplifying that the serial industry and vested interests, ideology are trying to silence the message about the health benefits of animal proteins and fats. So in whatever way you do it, I always just say, be noisy with me. I also hashtag I support Gary. Mm -hmm. um, so I joined social media back in 2007 as a photographer. It was a really amazing way to share photos that I was taking in a small community, get referrals, people would see what I was doing. So Megan and I, our youngest daughter, dragged Gary kicking and screaming onto social media in 2013. He was really anti-Facebook and everything else. But he said, you've got such a good message. You could use it on social media. So, yeah. and if he hadn't done that, maybe we would never have met everybody. Maybe he wouldn't have been targeted and we would have no idea the cereal industry was trying to silence mm. low carb. They still call it, a, or they have been until last year, calling it a fad diet. And yet but, but, a vegan yeah. diet is ex, can be yeah. supported. So it makes no sense until you consider the vested interest in the ideology that this is confronting. It's, mm. it's profits and profit in my mind. And, yeah, nice. Thank you. Um, and, and I think find it more than a little ironic that while in the midst of all this, the CSIRO publishes um, bestseller selling books on um, low, carb. low carb. Now, that would be something like the USDA publishing something or, or the USDA Ag Research Service yes. publishing. So it's, it's, a, it's a group with scientists who are used to working in that kind of a mindset and they're publishing that at the same time that we have all this going on um and i thought australia had some kind of link to english law tradition i i just yeah. what happened i um i but don't know but interestingly in 2015 as you said before, Gary and I founded Nutrition for Life in 2014 because Gary wasn't allowed to talk about nutrition and he had dietitians that were very keen to talk about low-carb. So we started a business and they provided the information so Gary could refer people that way. But we had one of the experts, Penny Taylor, who wrote that low-carb book. She came and spoke at an event we had for Nutrition for Life in 2015. When she came... She was so nervous because here she was talking about how important low-carb was. We had 630 people, which is a massive amount of audience in the model system, a huge audience. It was, it was picked up on one TV channel with a tiny, tiny bit about it. I mean, here's someone from CSIRO speaking. She was worried going back that she would be hounded at the airport, there'd be people wanting to ask questions. Nobody, nothing. It was even the media are told not to promote this message. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. And yes, the CSIRO finally got to do it when they did their book. But she was talking about it before their book came out and nothing was said. It was just so mm. quiet. So not the science. It's, yeah. it's beyond that. It's the non-science that's stopping the message. Um, so we've mentioned the, the building bridges. And in your experience, as you've, forgive me, but I'll use the phrase normal people, you know, the people that haven't been <laughs> in our, you know, sort of metabolic health, therapeutic carbohydrate reduction kind of space. Um, what, uh, any advice for people who might, hear this and want to do some additional research and I'll post links in the show notes to make sure that people can begin their own journey through the information to get themselves educated. But how, how have you beyond the clinic and the event that you talked about, are there other things that you're doing locally or any advice to people who would like to spread the message wider in their communities? I think what's amazing is that most of the people have come to find low carb through their own health journey. Most people. There's a few like Eric Westman or David Unman who had patients just go, look what I'm doing, this is amazing, and they've actually listened, which is incredible. But most people have come through their own health journey. So I think... As people start to understand what that is, I think people have to recognise first, it's like giving up smoking, it's like giving up all sorts of things. Sugar and processed carbs are very addictive. And so you have to sort of come to terms with that you want to make the change. In our community, Gary has run Bezzy's Fat Busters, I think since maybe 2014, 2013 maybe even. He's run it through a radio station and done it with the... Um, announcer and work through his health and we've had a whole lot of people sign up and join and we've and I think it's it's more than just giving information it's it's about supporting people it's wraparound support so in these communities like diet doctors offering um, and a lot of others low carb USA they're offering more than just the information the academic information they then offer talks and support groups and and I think this is where we need to go because it's not just the health professionals that we need to help understand how important this message is, but it's the people. And when the people change, they go and tell their doctor. They can tell friends. They become the elders. They become the people that others look up to and go, wow, you've done that. You, you're like me. You've done it. Okay, can you help me do it? And I think that's the incredible thing about social media. It's the incredible thing about taking back control of your health you feel in control and you and you just get more excited about sharing, paying it forward to others. Mm -hmm. And so we've run these uh, radio programs. The radio announcers have continued to promote this message ever since. So they've been fantastic advocates for us. Mm -hmm. We, through Nutrition for Life, we're running cooking schools, cooking classes, teaching people how to do low carb. This is how you do a brekkie. How easy is it? And our daughter wrote a really beautiful reference guide. She's very clever in doing lots of research and comparisons and things. So she went through the Australian Dietary Guidelines because 
Originally, the DAA was saying it's too expensive, unsustainable, too expensive. So she went through every single meal and worked out the cost that she was having the right amount of calories and all the things that they were recommending. And so she's done a fantastic comparison to show it's no different in cost. In fact, it's probably cheaper if you drop the snacks that they recommend and that you can eat really healthy. So let alone, I, let alone pharmaceuticals, let alone improvement of quality of life, let alone, yeah. as you say, the fact that your children could grow up with their father and their grandchildren could know grandpa. Um, how do you put a value on that? And uh, somebody, I forget who it was, talked about the difference between lifespan and health span. And, and I really like the idea of health span to, um, as a goal to, to remain as healthy as I'm genetically capable of being for as long as I can be, um, rather than spend the last couple years as essentially an invalid, which... Or yeah, 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 yeah. So let's not spend much more time there because it's probably getting closer than I'd like to think about. Um, so, uh, yeah, what's the food situation like in in your town? Is it like what you see in North America when you visit or more like what? It's rural. As I told you at the beginning of this chat, I'm looking out on cows right now. <laughs> Out the window, they're not out. You're ours, blessed. But You're blessed. <laughs> I, I'm very blessed. Um, we have an incredible, rich history of growing foods in Tasmania. We're, we're a little island off the mainland. So our biggest industry would be locally fresh grown grass, pasture-raised um, produce. Amazing. Like the cheeses, the meats, the, the fish. Eggs, it's like everything. We've got uh, Mount Roland eggs, and these chickens just roam all over Mount Roland. <laughs> it's incredible, like just beautiful foods, and mm. we're very, very lucky to have that here. They also grow fruits and veggies. Like we've got fertile soil, so we can access fresh local seasonal food easily here. Mm-hmm. And even uh, local IGA, it's a supermarket franchise. Um, they stock all the local produce. So they'll tell you which farmers they've gotten it from and, and which mm-hmm. places. So that's also really supporting local going beyond. I try not to go into a, a big supermarket. Mm-hmm. And I, we have- I've only... I've only been able to visit your country once, and that was to yes. Sydney, so that might not count. No. Um, and <laughs> so then... Yes, absolutely. And uh, yes, I walked across the bridge, but not the top, just the deck. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I got to visit New Zealand, which had been on my list as a forage agronomist, as someone interested mm-hmm. in pasture management. Um, but I was in a store in New Zealand, and I came across this delightful product called Rippings. And it was beef and lamb tallow that they had in the meat case, you know, like uh, we would might buy margarine in a similar container. And I was just, <laughs> oh, this is great. And I was setting it up and trying to pose the camera, you know, for my camera to mm-hmm. take it. And the store clerk came over and said, can I help you? And I was like, oh, no, that's, I'm just, we don't get this at home, you know, so. <laughs> tried to explain it away and it's just like American and he walked away. Um, 
So there are some products that are available that aren't maybe so common here. Um, lamb, for example, and uh, lamb would be far more frequently yes. a part of the menu than it is in the United States. And as you mentioned, the fish from um, all the, the oceans. <laughs> yeah, you can actually yeah, walk all... out in the rocks and get oysters. Like off the, you can get, go and collect your own. So nice. Um, <laughs> So let's see, um, you are still, um, isupportgary.com is where you're still publishing. So if people want to find more of your research, that's a place and your presentations as well. Yes, I think on the I Support Gary website is where I've, um, I've started to work out the a symbiotic relationship between Coca-Cola and elements of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. So they have come together in what's called lifestyle medicine. So the American College of Lifestyle Medicine started out in 2003 as the Christian Association of Lifestyle Medicine on Loma Linda University campus to teach people all their health reform principles, which include a lot of good things, sleep, rest, you know, fresh air, sunlight, like there's Don't a lot smoke. of goodness. Don't smoke, exactly, no alcohol, all those things. But unfortunately, and you can see it specifically in Sanitarium's CHIP program, which the American College of Lifestyle Medicine now endorses, that meat, dairy, eggs, milk are above the processed foods, the alcohol and the tobacco as the things that you would consume that would give you the worst possible health outcomes. So when you consider that this is their messaging, then I'm concerned about lifestyle medicine. In 2000, but it was mainly it was mainly done within the church realms, I would think, or, you know, people who were wanting to go vegan and aligned with their message. In 2010, two people from... Coca-Cola's Exercises Medicine, one of the guys who was the vice president of the Global Energy Balance Network, which was Coca-Cola founded and funded, um, joined Lifestyle Medicine. And since then, if I look at the work that they're creating and specifically the Lifestyle Medicine Education Collaborative, which is going to be the new medical education they're trying to get in, they've already started in America and they're trying very hard to get it into here in Australia and I'm be noisy with me. That's, that's part of my noise is challenging this. We've already seen what 50 years of demonising saturated fats has done and our doctors fear fat. Imagine if next generation's medical education is the Garden of Eden, fruits, grains, nuts and seeds, fear, animal proteins and fats, but a side of Coke's okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, that to me is so concerning and so on my website I talk more about this collaboration that I've uncovered it's too big and too too long to go into in this but if they go onto the website that's where people can start to see how I've put together my research and found this um, symbiotic relationship and in it I sort of say the public health message of Coca-Cola and the processed food industry is intent on minimising the harms of sugar. And the public health message from the Seventh-day Adventist Church is intent on promoting 
the Garden of Eden diet, which is fruits, nuts and seeds, that they believe was God-appointed diet, they come together demonising saturated fats. So it really suits, and I would say now animal proteins. So that means they also come together on the plant-biased dietary messaging we hear over and over again. Mm-hmm. So uh, you, you mentioned when you were talking about health food, are they the people that gave us that phrase or did that come from somewhere else? Absolutely. John Harvey Kellogg invented the very first health foods at Battle Creek Sanitarium mm-hmm. as a devout Seventh-day Adventist in the 1800s. He left the church in the 1900s, but he was employed in 1876 by the church. He'd been funded to become a doctor by the church and he became the medical superintendent of the Battle Creek Sanitarium. He set up an experimental kitchen and the very first things he was trying to make were foods to take the place of flesh meat, milk and butter. And of so course he, he wasn't that's where a big, it started. Yeah, he wasn't a big fan of sugar, but no, they, no. they sort of went there when they saw that others were going to and said, well, we can't afford to be left behind. And, um, and, and that this is one of the challenges for anyone who gets into public with any kind of messaging about an appropriate diet that there are terms that are in common use, but people, like we were speaking about earlier, vegetarian doesn't mm-hmm. mean vegetarian to everyone. I mean, yes. the, the, we, we have words, but we have very flexible definitions behind them, which mm-hmm. lets us think that we're agreeing on something when we're not agreeing at all. We're just using the same word. They mean different things to us. So mm-hmm. when somebody says nutrient dense, I try to point out, well, the dietary guidelines defines nutrient dense as low in fat, either natural or added, because fat is not a nutrient. Fat can only dilute the what they think are essential nutrients, often from plants, antioxidants, and what have you. Um, and and the other bit, and I, I so appreciate the way Zoe Harkham. Dr. Harkum puts this out is there's saturated fat in virtually any natural food. Um, and so how is it that a saturated fat that you might get from avocados, for example, is healthy, but the saturated fat that you get from tuna or dairy products or heaven forbid red meat would be bad. Um, and, and just as the monounsaturated fatty acids in olive oil are thought to be good, how can that very same monounsaturated fatty acid be bad when it comes from beef, for example? Yes. And so it, it's just, it, it's something that pays some study. Thank you for what you've done. Um, and, and I, I remember Gary saying it was a fight that had to be fought, um, because if, if they succeed with me, then who's next and where does it go next? And it, it's bad enough now. I don't want to think where it's going to go if this is allowed 
to continue. I've been told uh, of some other efforts on a global basis to try to mm. drive towards a planetary diet, which is essentially macrobiotic, which can't help but worsen conditions for billions of people worldwide. And so we have to find ways to push back and be noisy with yes. me is certainly a place <laughs> for that to start. Um, and with ourselves, as you said, that, that we experience it and then the people around us or we find people that we can work with. Yes. Um, so what, what, what sorts of things... Are there any questions that you'd like to ask me? I've been asking you questions, so it's only fair. Gary oh. stumped me for the one nil score, by the way. So, if you oh, do you... <laughs> well, I, I, I don't know if it's a question as much as you put my mind to rest when we were having a chat at Low Carb USA, and just discussed this idea that that God told us we can't eat meat, or that meat's forbidden. Ellen G. White's message that for translation you have to get rid of flesh meat. And you and I discussed the fact that this isn't what the Bible says and our interpretation is very different and that red meat or meat is so important in our diet for our health that it, it challenges that whole perspective and your thoughts on it are just beautiful. And I think it would be really lovely if you could talk about that. But Well, surely I, it's hard. There are always potential points of disagreement that people, some people don't, for example, believe in evolution. And I, I don't wish to, um, to be argumentative, but I do. And I think that it's possible to have a life of faith and a life in science. And for anyone who'd like to look more into that, I suggest biologos.org. Um, the man that founded it ran the Human Genome Project. So he's a high-quality scientist, and he understands DNA, um, but he also practices a life of faith. These things are only in opposition when human stuff gets in the way. Uh, usually there's some faulty theology or faulty science or both operating at the same time. I think that the fit between the development of grass, grasses as a species, followed by the development of ruminants as species, and then followed by the primates and hominids and finally modern human beings is such a clear pattern that to think that we did not develop because that resource was available is, is, does not follow the science as I understand it. And I think that for myself, I really do believe that giving people this message so that they might become all that they're capable of being is 
so important. And I've said it in other places, but I really do think you can have one of two principal um, uh, philosophies as we approach solving problems, uh, big problems. And, and the one is that we can try to minimize human impact. I think the other one is that we could try to maximize human flourishing. And for me, the, I believe that if we will pursue maximizing human flourishing in all that that means, yes. we'll get to minimizing human impact. Because part of that is honoring the inherent value and importance of individuals versus the other, which tends to be top down. And we see what happens with top-down things. They're susceptible to um, conflict of interest and vested interests, and they tend to be one-size-fits-all, and humans aren't. Um, one of them, I don't know. I, I talked to the man this morning who gave me this. He said the average human being has one breast and one testicle, but you don't see many of them walking around. So any... <laughs> Anything that's got, you know, whatever the average should be is obviously going to leave out a lot of people because there's, that's only a few um, people aren't that way. And, and so anything that then ends up diminishing those lives, I think has to be spoken against. And that's from a faith informed perspective. And I need to do it with respect and consideration. Yes. And I, I need to work on all of those aspects in my life. Um, but I really do think that if it is, it's completely possible for people to be sincerely wrong. And so I have no problem believing that a large number of adherents to this particular organization would say things with full faith that what they were saying was true. However, I know that there are people who repeat that message, but they know what's true. They know it isn't. And, and so if an honest man is shown to be an error, he either ceases to be an error or he ceases to be honest. And, and our job is to figure out how we can lay information in front of people, make sure it's more widely accessible, and then trust that if we've done that in a way that doesn't shut down communication and lock people more firmly in their positions, yes. that someday down the road, they might go, huh, you know, the doctor just told me that I'm pre-diabetic, and I remember hearing that. And then they go and they find from whoever that information and they apply it and they have their own personal journey like you were describing. And maybe they become a pivotal patient for their Dr. Unwin or their Dr. Westman. And then from there, it, it goes on from there. So that's the perspective I try to bring um, to the whole conversation. And I don't know if that repeats what we spoke about then. I think it does, but that's definitely what I found from talking to you. And you have such a, a 
brilliant way of making people feel very safe and presenting your information with just a touch of humour, but it's just, it's the science. And, but you bring it down to people's level. You bring it down so people can understand and they feel included. And it's in everything you discuss. I'm just, I'm honoured to be invited to be interviewed. And, and oh, thank you for, for helping get this message out because it's, it is really important to understand that choice can't be taken away. It's about choice and it's about health. The most important thing is health. And people having these tools is amazing. Diabetes Australia just put out last week or a couple of weeks ago on their Facebook page that low carb will be supported. I screen grabbed it, I've put it everywhere. It's not on their website, but they put it on their Facebook page and think, I'm going to hold you to account. And that's be noisy with me. You put that up there, you said you'll support, so now you have to follow through. And that's yeah, it's just and, and and maybe even it. what could I do to help you, right? And what can I do it, to help you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, um, there's a lot of people who then can just take that message. I think Gary and Tim and myself, we sort of pay. You know, we we're sort of out there a little bit, but then other people can then just quietly come under mm -hmm. and have that conversation with people that they're less defensive against as well. So you're the perfect True. person to take it further. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. One of the things that this effort of pot, sorry, sodcasting has made me remember is how much I miss all these people that I used to see so frequently. And, and I certainly miss sitting next to you and watching Gary um, or, you know, having our side conversations or watching you give presentations. And so um, I look forward to the day when we can do that again. Um, so I. I, I thank you for spending this time and sharing your story. Um, and I hope that my friends from my agricultural tribes or others can uh, benefit, follow up on your research, and maybe even we can find ways for people in the animal agriculture industries mm -hmm. to get a fuller appreciation of who is behind the messages against the products of their efforts. Yes, I think that's a really important place and I'd love to speak to anyone who would like to, to listen and to have that conversation. Perfect. Um, please go give Gary a hug for me. I will. <laughs> All right. Excellent. Thank you so and much. Hi to Nancy. Lots of love to you both. Thank you. And to you both. Bye.